0: Change that about yourself. I got an interesting email this week. He says, "Thank you for taking my email in question. My girlfriend and I listen to you on the radio, and she respects your opinion as I do." And actually, I just want to know if there's a test that I can take to determine if I have a sexual addiction. And yes, you can go to sexhelp.com and take a test that's the beginner's test to determine if you need to talk with somebody like a CSAT. So thank you so much for your email. And I got to tell you, I have a man by the name of Joe on the line, and Joe was looking at my group work for men in sexual recovery, and he had some questions. And Joe, I want to welcome you to Sex Help with Carol the Coach.
1: Hey, thank you, Carol. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yes, and I've had a chance to look at some of the questions. Let me just preface this with
1: saying that when
0: I talked with Patrick Carnes, he had said to me um, that he was excited that a woman who did not need recovery was willing to do this work, and I thanked him greatly. And then I asked him, Patrick, is there anything that you think would make me an excellent Therapist, And he said, if you start a group for sex mm-hmm. addicts, that is the number one thing that they need. So I really appreciated the fact that you had some questions about the 15-week group that I actually recommend as a starter for sex addiction. So go ahead, just start asking me questions.
1: Great, thanks, Carol. Thanks for taking my my questions here. Yeah, that was really a, a, a specific question: is the 15-week uh, uh, curriculum that's offered? And by the way, it's a phenomenal resource that I've looked at that you have. Um, I was curious if thank this is you. best for thank you. are welcome. If this is best for uh, a beginners type of a group or a more advanced type of a group. In other words, are these the um, uh, folks that have just started their recovery or have been in recovery for for quite some time?
0: Yeah, Joe, that is a great question. And I've got to tell you that when I started, um, I used this first 15-week series to begin my group, and I had men in the group that had just discovered that they were sex addicts. I had men that were in significant recovery for a while, And then I had men that were really having trouble finding sobriety. So I had all three types of men. They started out together, and I found that having those different styles, you know, having the different phases allowed them to help each other. And also, as you well know, when you see it in a 12-step group, uh, it also gave them a lot of gratitude for where they were, where they've been, and where they wanted to go. So I put all types of men in these groups, but I did do an intake on each and every one first to make sure they were appropriate for group therapy.
1: That was going to be my second question, actually, is <clears throat> what is the, uh, the, the vetting process or the interview process that you've typically used in the past that has been helpful to make sure that the right, uh, fi- that, that there's a right fit amongst participants or members?
0: Yeah, well, I always, I've run over 2,000 groups in general, and I've always made sure that I didn't have um, more than one or two people in my group that had personality disorders, you know, if, were, if they were narcissistic or histrionic or had some borderline features. I really kept that to a minimum because I wanted this group to be able to connect. It is in the connection that they create the antidote of uh, recovery. And so I really wanted to make sure that they were relatively healthy from an Axis two standpoint. Other than that, they could have anxiety. They could have depression. They could have impulse control disorder. I did this manual before we had problematic compulsive sexual behavior. So, You know, if they had an impulse control problem, that's the diagnosis I gave them for sex addiction. So that's what I would do. And I don't know if I was clear in the manual, but this group process is 15 weeks, and then we take a two-week break, and then we do another 15 weeks based on what the needs are in the group.
1: Uh, I, I did not catch that from the book and I'm glad you clarified that. That's That sounds, uh, that sounds beneficial in a big way because in, in the 15 weeks, there's probably going to be a lot that comes out of that in that first round of 15 weeks. There's going to be more needed.
0: <laughs> well, absolutely. And I've got to tell you, the average male in this sex addiction therapy group is in there for two and a half years. Now, the 15-week chunks that I do allow for a couple of things. I give them the homework assignment to bond for the two weeks that we aren't in group so that they can actually create some fellowship outside of the group, as well as if somebody is
1: graduating from group, it allows a newcomer to come in. hmm that makes sense. That makes a ton of sense. Uh, Carol, uh, when you say uh, graduate from group, um, what, uh, I suppose, criteria, for lack of better terms, um, in your mind, allows them to, to make that graduation?
0: Well, for this model that I use, because now I do a whole other um, type of men's group, too, for this model, they have had to have good recovery for at least a year, They have to have been able to um, mentor other men in the group successfully with really good feedback and accountability. They had to have done a lot of their own personal work. You know, one of the things about this manual is that we talk about a lot of experiential work. So they're writing grief letters. They're... um, talking about their own sexual abuse and trauma history. Uh, They're talking about the trauma reenactment that has occurred that created part of the sex addiction. Uh, They're not using other substances to medicate. We all know that when sex addiction gets better, if if they're prone to any other addictions, they get worse. So we're monitoring that. And to be real honest, Joe, I literally have to kick, kick them out. you know, in terms of graduating. I will suggest that they graduate and they say, I'm not ready. And they are ready, but what they're not ready to do is leave the safety of the group because they've really bonded. Um, And as you can imagine, it's always hard when new members come in, but they find that they quickly, with the use of these exercises, are able to quickly... um, we establish, or establish relationships with the newcomers, and they feel like they're making a difference,
1: and they are. That, that, that sounds about fair, uh, not just fair, but fantastic. And what I mean by that is uh, this is, sounds very much similar to a 12-step community in uh, step, step 12 giving back um, and, and, mm-hmm. and being a part of the group. Right, and so just giving back to the newcomers. So it sounds like that's the same type of dynamic that takes place in a 15 week group as well.
0: Yes, and we really work um, diligently on teaching them at least the first 10 to 15 recovery tasks. I really believe in Dr. Carnes' model of um, being able to identify. You know, what is the first task and how do you break denial and what does it mean to really understand sexual addiction? So we are doing some psychoeducation in addition to the experiential exercises that we give. And Joe, this group, you know, as far as you're concerned, will will be as creative as you make it. So you'll want okay. to look at some other therapy processes um, to include into the group. And really, they become the best guide. They'll say, you know, I'm so mad at my father, I need to have a funeral. And then we'll say, well, let's make that happen in group. Or, you know, the empty chair technique or Being able to identify 50 things that they like about themselves and then for the man that has the biggest difficulty with that, the group circles around him and and helps to give him that message and he works on receiving. And those kind of processes are especially difficult for men. And yet what I know to be true is men really want the opportunity to bond and to be together and create that fellowship. And and they love the crosstalk. And of course, in a 12-step group, they don't get the crosstalk. They do get to do check-ins, but they don't get to do the crosstalk. And these
1: guys right. do the crosstalk. Right. right, right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it sounds like Carol, it sounds like you, uh, you incorporate or you, you advocate uh, for the 30-task the model uh, in conjunction with the experiential 15-week process.
0: 100%, as well as I okay. quiz them on. You know, I'll say, okay, okay. now you, you got to, to task number six last week. Let's go over this. Tell me what the the six the first six tasks are, and then we talk about the seven. And, you know, we know that they're not really linear, but they have been created, you know, to make sense linearly. Other than the relationship task, which I really bring in at about week number three or four, I want to be assessing for their relationships too because that adds a great deal of stress both to their life and, of course, addicts can create a great deal of stress just coming into recovery. So I want to really help them with that relationship, because you know what we know, that the work they do in the group then transfers out into their home, into their families, and into their churches, and whatever communities they have available to them. So I'm really always assessing for that too.
1: Yes, absolutely. Carol, this has been so helpful. This uh, Just this short time has, has helped me um, conceptualize. Uh, how you implement this 15-week group and um, and it's and supplement it with the 30-test uh, model. So I really appreciate your time with this.
0: Well, and I just got to thinking, Joe, I, I appreciate you being interested. And I do believe I have a, uh, an hour-and-a-half presentation I did for ITAP based on this manual. I'm going to see if I can't find it to you and then email you a link so that you can access
1: that too oh wow that would be fantastic that would be wonderful I would so appreciate that Carol absolutely well thanks for checking
0: in and you know we need to let our guys know that they need to ask their therapists that are CSATs for sex addiction um, therapy groups because as Patrick Carnes said it's the number one way we can really create a rich therapeutic environment for the men and the women that
1: we work with. So thanks right. for
0: calling, and um, I'll see if I can't find that and let you know in the next week what I found out.
1: Thank you, Carol. Have a great evening. Take care.
0: Hey, yeah, you too, Joe. Bye-bye. Yeah, I'm always appreciative of clinicians that want to go deeper with their work. And Joe is obviously a man who had contacted me and said, Carol, I really, really want to be able to run a 15-week group. And you heard me say, the truth of the matter is that 15 weeks turns into more like 104, 140 weeks. But I promise you, what I know to be true is that there is nothing like group therapy to help a man or a woman work through um, the needed growth that will take their life to the next level. So I'm always happy to do that. You're listening to Carol the Coach, and I am so glad to be with you. And when we come back, hopefully we'll have Mike on the line. And Michael Crocker is going to be talking to us about punishment and guilt. So I'll be right back. Hey, listeners, are you ready for a little healing and restoration after betrayal? Hi, I'm Carol, the coach, and we're living for Tuscany, Italy on July 25th through August 1st. And I would love for you to join us. There is no denying that I want you to find your post-traumatic growth. And one of the ways you can do that is by settling in and experiencing life on a different level. We're going to be staying in a beautiful, traditional Italian farmhouse with seven bedrooms located between Florence and Siena. The farmhouse has a pool on a 625-acre winery. The tour is your opportunity to regain your life and treat yourself to adventure, nurturing, and personal growth. And I will be providing morning workshops and a free coaching session just for you. So if you're ready to reclaim your life and live the life you deserve, Go to Sex Help with Carol the Coach or Street View Adventure Travel and sign up. There are only eight spots left, so treat yourself to an international experience of connection, reflection, laughter, and support with other women. And just know I can't wait to meet you. That's right. I am offering for partners this trip to Italy and. You know, I feel so blessed to be able to help them get to post-traumatic growth. Now, if your wife or spouse, it has to be female. We can't take male partners right now. If your wife or spouse is in need of a little restoration and you want her to work with somebody that wants to remind her of her strengths and of the post traumatic growth that may have been occurring because of the addiction, and maybe, just maybe, um, what what she may not realize is that some of the trauma that she has been through has actually created great strength. Well, then you need to go to Sex Help with Carol to coach and take a look at this trip for her, and um, we'd love to have her on the trip, and that. You know, I talk to men who really work diligently on um, trying to create a new environment, you know, and sometimes they're changing things that have to do with their old acting out. You know, I've had many a client have to trade in their vehicle because betrayal occurred in their old vehicle. Or many a client that wanted to buy their wife a new ring to signify a new commitment. And so this is just another way to really take care of your spouse and encourage her to do something filled with self-care. And that's what I believe to be true. And I really think travel is a great way to make that happen. And I'm sure you do too. So as we continue to wait for Michael, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about what you're doing in your recovery to make life better. You know, what are you doing? Is there something that you feel has aided in your recovery that's kind of new and different? So I'm just not sure what that is but I would love for you to email me at carol at carolthecoach.com and just know that I really believe that you all have a lot of great ideas that we as can appreciate learning from I mean, we always say we learn as much from you as you learn from us. So if you've got some new ideas on how to make recovery better Email me and let me know so that I can read them on the air. And I am so excited to be talking with Michael Crocker tonight. He was talking about guilt and punishment and all sorts of things that I felt like you all would want to hear about. We all know there's all sorts of ways that addicts experience interpersonal betrayal of trauma. So, Michael, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, Carol. Thanks for having me back again so happy to be Absolutely. back on the show.
0: Absolutely. Well, you know, you, um, you really stood out the last time we talked. I had a lot of men requesting the information that you were willing to put out there about play. So, oh, that's I, great. I tell us a little bit about this topic, would you? I know that we've got a lot of therapists that need to help addicts through the guilt and stop injuring themselves. So, So share with me your take on guilt and punishment and self-injury.
2: Well, you know what's interesting uh, is that one of the reasons that I posted about this on uh, some of the listservs in which I posted about this was because I had actually come across a paper that I wrote in 1998. So that gives you a mm. little bit of an idea of how long I've been doing this. <laughs> and, and the title no the kidding. title of the paper I know, right? And the title of the paper yeah. was gender development and super ego as it relates to sexual compulsivity. And and so I'm re I reread the paper over the weekend and I was then so struck by reading reading what I was, what I had written, what, how long ago would that be? 22 years ago. And that yeah. my thinking has not changed. It's actually, I, I was on to the idea that that sexual compulsivity had like a super ego pathology to it, which is not necessarily what you always hear. Um, you don't always hear people framing it that way. And yet I was framing it that way Way back then, because uh, I would see the men that I was working with were always in a state of self-torment, self-punishment, um, uh, self-attack, and that, uh, and that interestingly enough, all of that, all of that super ego activity did not change their ability to not engage in the behavior. It actually made it worse. You know, when you think about it, Patrick Carnes was saying this a long time. Yeah, Patrick Carnes said this a long time ago, and I think he was right on. Is that shame is not a deterrent to these behaviors. It actually it actually makes them worse. It's fuel for the behaviors. And so that's so when so when I read the paper, I was reading about the gender development with men and the socialization process with men, and how men are are. Sadly, and I think this is the saddest part of it all, they're sadly socialized out of their emotions, or, or should I say socialized out of an emotional awareness, and so that their feeling states are oftentimes stuck in their body, and for that reason, and this, is, again, is mostly the, my practice is mostly men, but for that reason, they go to bodily means to address it, because they don't have what they call an attachment theory reflective function. They oftentimes are lacking in reflective function—the ability to reflect on a feeling state, recognize that that this is this feeling state is getting activated for some reason, and then to use the feelings relationally. That is that is uh, deficient in men, in many men that we that that we work with. You know, men that oh, are I would men 100% that are.
0: Percent agree. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, how do you work with these men? I'll tell you how I do it, but how do you work with these men to get them comfortable with feeling states and, and you know, link that to their past, current, and present?
2: That's a great experience. question. Um, yeah, it's a really great question. You know, it's one of the things that that we do here at the, uh, at the SAP project is that we, we do a lot of group work. In fact, on um, monday night is my group night i see a number of uh, i run a number of groups and i would say that the group focus is actually on emotional literacy it is on mm. first of all there's a there's a definite psychoeducational aspect of and we were talking about it tonight in, in our group in where i leaned to them, to to these guys that they were socialized out of their feeling states i give them the uh, uh, the example that what was his name? I think the guy's name was Levant actually, this guy Levant, who wrote a lot about um male socialization. He pointed out that that actually male infants are more emotional than female infants when they're when they're first born and and hmm. during most of infancy however this is this part is the most fascinating to me by the age of three to four there's a complete reversal. Their emotionality starts to decrease. So, so we're talking about clearly a socialization process that is going on that that is supported by peers, supported by parents, supported by teachers. In fact, a guy Pollock who wrote the book Real Boys talked about the fact he actually did videotapes of watching Mothers with their toddler son versus mo- mothers with their toddler uh, daughter. And he noticed, and this is all in videotape, and I remember seeing this like on 2020 or 60 Minutes back in the day, is he, he noticed that when, when, uh, when toddler girls would be expressing a feeling state or be distressed or be upset, the parents generally reflected the feeling state back to them, mirrored it, like through attunement. But, but what, they, what they did with their toddler boys was different. They distracted them. They gave them a toy. They gave them some sort of object. So think about the setup there. Young, young boys are set up to not actually express their feeling states, but instead they get distracted from them. Now, isn't that, doesn't that sound familiar when, you, when we think about the men we work with? that have struggled Absolutely. with out-of-control sexual behavior. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. It's well, amazing yes, and, it and makes heartbreaking. so
0: much sense. Yeah, it's like a, yeah. a maladaptive coping, coping mechanism that has become adaptive,
2: you know? I mean, exactly. that is what they were taught, yeah. Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. And then there was this other theorist, this guy, uh, Joseph Pleck, that he, he called this, And he took it a little bit further as as toddler boys go into being being older and adolescent and so on. He talked about a male gender role strain and he talked about how boys were put in into a no win situation. So if they they needed to conform to the role of what it meant, what it meant to be a boy or eventually a man. And if they didn't, then they ran the risk of scorn and alienation from their peers, their male peers, but the other, the other is they, if they don't conform to it and they choose to continue to be, try to be expressive and so on, they, they're just, they're not going to feel like they're part of something. And unfortunately, one of the things that these boys lose is they lose their, their um, inner life, the inner life processing, the reflective function. They never really get to exercise that muscle. And that's devastating for, our, for the men in, in, uh, in the world because we see where this ends up going. Men commit more suicide. They commit more homicide. They tend to uh, act out more. They tend to have what, what they call in our field a manic defense. They're, they're always defending and trying to ward off feeling states rather than deal with them, and particularly, Carol, rather than deal with them relationally. And so, to your question about how do we deal with this, is, there, is I have – I'm actually going to go grab it here. In my office, I have a feelings wheel that I actually when – when I first start the group, I hand out the wheel. It's on a piece of cardboard, and it, and it has all the major feelings and all the different um, derivatives of those feelings. And I actually ask the guys to go around and let me know – where they are right now in terms of their feeling state, because I am, I'm retraining them, teaching them to figure out what they're feeling, teaching them to, to be able to identify the feeling state, and then teaching them how to express it and work with it in the group. It's one of the reasons why I do a lot of combined treatment, where they're both an in individual and in group. Um, I find it to be much more helpful because well, we're totally retraining them.
0: Well, and there's something about you in general. You have a a very balanced sense of role modeling feeling identification anyway. So I'm sure Mm -hmm. that they really watch you and how you do it. And here you are, the epitome of I can have feelings, I can share sensitivity, and I'm in charge here. And look, you can be a strong man and still own your feelings.
2: Right. 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 And, and, and I use myself a lot in the group. So if I'm noticing mm-hmm. that I'm feeling something that's coming up in the group, I actually will express it. And I'll, and I'll talk about that. I'll talk about how sometimes, you know, what one of the things that's most fascinating is you'll, and I bet you've seen this is you'll have someone that is talking about something that happened to them when they were younger, that, that was traumatic but they're not having any feeling states about it, but the rest of the group is. And we call that, you know, one of the things we call that is like a disavowal of the feeling state, but but other people experience it for you. And so part of what the group work is, is to get that feeling back into the, the, the person that originally had it and see if there's, you know, by reflecting like, oh, so I'll actually point out like so interesting that you're telling this story as if you're reading from a book and look around you, look and see what the feeling states are around you. And so that is part of the way that I am retraining them to be able to have their feelings and then to use the feelings relationally. But it's a fascinating group phenomenon to watch that happen. And it happens all the time, especially early on in groups.
0: And so let me ask you, because you too, in this paper talks a lot about Freud, and it talks about how punishment uh, is correlated with guilt and addiction. So Mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about that.
2: Well, you know what, it's interesting, because I'm in the middle of writing a paper with, with a colleague of mine, and one of the things that we're looking at is, like, what exactly is, Superego function issue with uh, with the with the patients that we work with that struggle with out of control sexual behavior and one of the things that my colleague was saying my colleague art Bauer is he's saying that he, what how he sees it is that oftentimes when people have this type of superego pathology the superego attack is towards themselves i mean sometimes we see we've seen with patients where they're dismissive of of others and there's a uh, they can be contemptuous. We've seen that, right? But, um, but many, many times, where where this originates is, is much more about self attack. And it's you know it's one of the unfortunate things that in development there's often like an emphatic separation from from the the mother because now it's time to to disidentify from the mother and identify more with the father and man up and pull yourself up from your bootstraps and all of that type of stuff. And so once again, the person is put into a place where they're, they're, they're cut off from their feeling states There's in the disavowal of the feeling states. And there's also this kind of tendency towards self attack. That's the, so the superego is, is really much more focused on attack self. And if you remember, I think I talked about this when you and I spoke once is that, I also use shame scales. And, and so this guy, uh, Nathanson, developed this thing called the Compass of Shame Scale. And it's a, it's a very basic assessment, but it, what it does, uh, it results in an identification of the level of shame that you experience in your life. And, um, and that shame can show up as attack other, attack self, Avoid, and there's another one avoidance and escape, I think is the other one. And, um, and one of the things that's so fascinating is how, 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 when people take these scales, the groups of men that I work with, the men that are coming in with sexual compulsivity and sex addiction, out of control sexual behavior, their attack self scale is always, is usually the highest. It's usually the highest, and so, and so. So there's what, this, would, this what would that look
0: like, though, Michael? What would that look like? Um, that scale would look is high, and so what are some of those
2: behaviors? Um, and, uh, I could tell you just from the group I ran tonight. I could give you examples. Okay. They we were talking. This group was talking about the difficulty in accepting praise, and so I said, "Well, let's talk about that. What what is that about? Oh, well, when I get praised at, at work, and I feel like I feel like, uh, how, how one of the guys put it, I feel like, um, um, I have my imposter syndrome. Like they, if they only knew, if they only knew, uh, the truth about me. And so, and so I said to him, I said, so then you, if that's the case, if you go into like imposter syndrome mode, then you can't take that praise in you don't metabolize that praise and then you just, it stays static. You, you continue to stay in this place of feeling not good about yourself. And that's what's really interesting. It's like once you get these guys talking about their feeling states and you get them talking about their shame, their relationship mm-hmm. to shame, then you actually find out all the, the self-attacking thoughts that they have. Whether it's I'm an imposter, whether or not, oh, this is never going to last, I'm, I'm going to screw this up eventually, I mean, that's what was interesting about even the art, one of the articles that I had shared um, on the listserv is that, that this, the article that was, that was done by uh, Carvath, um, he wrote, The Unconscious Need for Punishment, uh, Expression or Evasion of the Sense of Guilt. is like they, they, they are so operating, so operating out of shame all the time that that's what you need to get at, and you need to get at the spec- with specificity how it is that they talk to themselves about this stuff because if, if we don't get to the shame if we don't detoxify the shame and we don't reduce it they will stay in the same place and we have to get them to put that to language we got to get them to start tell tell us the shame the shame statements that you have that that are always going around in your head you know, like like these guys don't feel – generally, they don't feel good about what they're doing. We had a new group member join tonight, and and this is a really great experience for him because he's only just recently started to recognize that he's out of control, that he's hurting the people around him, and that he's really hurting himself. And so he was revealing some of the, the shame statements that he has that are just pretty – it's just – heartbreaking the way these guys really talk to themselves once you get it out of them. But oftentimes early in treatment, they're trying to hide it. They're trying to act like they're fine. You know, that, that, you know, that, that there's nothing wrong. There's like a, one of the things I see with the guys that we work with is this toxic self-sufficiency. I believe Mm -hmm. Holly called it defensive autonomy. And so there's this sense of like, they're not supposed to need anything or need anyone, they should be able to take care of everything. Well, that's, not, that's no way to live. <laughs> that's not a good way to live. Because you're, gonna, you're, you're gonna, there are going to be times where there is going to be something that you need from another person. Like, you're going to need support. Like, I'm all about helping them to develop interdependency. You know, as, as uh, Alex Katahakis calls it, co-regulation rather than or regulation.
0: And i got to tell you that, you know, again, they've come from situations where their needs weren't acknowledged, and so they Mm -hmm. learn how to take care of their needs themselves, sometimes adaptively, sometimes maladaptively. And then you just pointed out that oftentimes their attachment style is that avoidant dismissive where – They've yeah. got it. They can take care of it. They don't need anybody. Mm-hmm. And interdependence, let's, let's just talk about that for one second. I want our listening audience to know that obviously you have independence and then you have dependence. And as therapists, we're always working on creating interdependence because that attachment, Correct. that relational attachment is what life's all about, to be able to count on somebody and be counted on.
2: That is so true. That is so true. That's, like, the essence of our work, right, is, like, to help Absolutely. them to understand the issue of co-regulation and, and um, interdependency and to help them to, to be able to rely on, on, on others. It's just, like, and, like, you, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that in the, um, the research I did when I was getting my doctorate, we we used um, we did um, we, we used a few different uh, methods to try to evaluate um, people with out of control behavior and I think I might have mentioned to you that the study resulted in some clear evidence that the uh, people with out of control uh, sexual behavior had a higher uh, tendency to to be uh, dismissive avoidant and so. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we, we also were able to correlate the out of control sexual behavior with was a history of emotional neglect. Mm-hmm. That, that was, one, and that, was Karn, that was so high. Mm-hmm.
0: Patrick Karn said it best when he told us that, you know, sexual, physical, emotional abuse is horrible. But mm-hmm. emotional neglect is by far the toughest. Um, yes situation to regulate because it's invisible and nobody can really see it. So they can't support you and console you and help you work through it, which then creates
2: that avoidant dismissive attachment disorder. Exactly right. Exactly right. Now,
0: can I ask you one other thing? Because you did a great job of letting um, our listening audience know that's one behavior that you see, men that cannot receive, and yet, earlier you were talking about the superego. So, can you explain to our listening audience what someone is like if their superego is really activated? If, that, if they come from a place of their superego?
2: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Sure, it can. You know, I think one of the things to, uh, and it kind of goes hand in hand with what we were just saying, is like when people have this, this kind of superego pathology. Uh, they're, they're, it's almost like there's an inability to access any self compassion. And if your compassion, you as therapist are compassionate to them, they tend to dismiss it. They can't take it in. And so that's what you see with someone with this kind of severe, harsh superego. Back in the in like or the early probably the fifties and sixties, they used to call it they used to call it superego lacunae, which meant that the superego had holes in it. So rather than, than the superego helping them to kind of like create the rules of life to kind of be their moral compass, instead there'd be harshness and then a gap, harshness and then a gap. And that's why we see with the people that we work with is that they're, they're not lacking a superego. This is not a, a, about a... Um, an impulse-control, id-related type of disorder. It's actually a superego disorder where there's, there's a gap and then there's severity and, and they beat the daylights out of themselves. So that's why we see, and Patrick Carnes pointed this out, is that we see people that engage in these behaviors, then they have a shame spiral. Then that shame spiral is so distressing to them that's where the harshness of the superego comes in, then right back to the behavior, and that's where the gap in the superego comes in. That's why Aviel Goodman said this, the superego does not create control for people with anything. It, it creates their, it pushes them in the direction of dissociation, which as we know, is part of part and parcel of sexual acting out. And so that's why early, you know prior to people coming into treatment, they were, like, trying to, trying to just um, function out there, and they were trying to, to continue these behaviors, but they couldn't figure out why they were doing it. And it was really because they had such harsh superegos, which, which usually comes from, you know, the, one's upbringing. Again, the issues of emotional neglect, the issues of not being able to express distress and anger in the family system. So that all that anger and all that distress got self-directed instead, rather than being able to turn to a caretaker that would be attuned, they went into a place of well, I got to figure this out myself, or they went into a place as as John Bowlby would talk about it of of resignation and detachment. You know, like I don't know if you've ever seen the still face studies by by uh, Tronic Ed Tronic. He he would have. Uh, an infant with a mother and they would be kind of engaging and the mother would be attuned and loving and so on. And then uh, Ed Tronic would say to, to the mother, still your face, do not mirror your, your, they're heartbreaking. It's on YouTube. You can find it. Still your face. Do not respond to your toddler. And then uh, the toddler would start to protest. They would go into screaming and pointing, trying to get the mother to, to somehow engage with them. Um, And so there would be all this, then they would go into despair and then they would go into resignation and detachment. And I believe if we were to kind of think about our, our patients, that is what happens to them is that they didn't get the attunement. They went in, they went from protest to despair to detachment. And those are the men that we're working with. Those are the men that sit in my groups. And that's why I have to keep that in my mind so that I can have compassion for them, and then I can help them to start to to talk. And it's so funny to say this, to tolerate compassion.
0: (laughs) Well, and you know what? I get that, tolerate compassion. And so, again, for our listening audience, what Michael's talking about, you can Google, and it is a still-faced video.
2: Still-faced. uh, studies,
0: was, yeah, yeah, and it was, it is the most compelling, um, I think, video about attachment that there is because literally yes. this mother just absolutely goes blank. She stops yep. smiling and cooing with her baby. She stops clapping. She loses yep. all emotion, and the baby, within fifteen seconds, begins to cry and. Clapped its hands, and I mean, I think it's a little boy, if I'm not mistaken. But really, yeah,
2: is. really, is. really
0: wanting to, to get mom's attention, and of course, yeah. she keeps that still face. I, I implore all of you to to take a look at that. It's only three minutes,
2: right? And I actually think it would be interesting for your audience to take a look at it because it also will help them to understand. Like for those for those partners out there that have, uh, have a, um, a husband, a spouse that has engaged in what I consider dissociative behaviors, such as sexual acting out and other behaviors as well, it gives you a, 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 a different level of compassion and you start to recognize that most of my patients were, were, those still, were those kids that were facing a caretaker that was still faced in some form or fashion. So if you think about it, if you have a mother that or mother or father that's alcoholic or on drugs or has their own unresolved trauma, then you have a still faced caretaker. That's what you're dealing with. You have had that. And for that reason you developed these other types of coping strategies that became that were maladaptive. They may have saved people's lives for a period of time, but the solution becomes the problem, right? So it's an initial solution. That's what attachment theorists say all the time is it's an initial solution to the issue of feeling um, lost, but then it becomes a problem because it's not a long-term solution. And so let me just ask you, because
0: obviously you're writing this paper, and um, I was unclear as I read this interesting article that you Gave to all of us. Um, I was unclear as to what the hypothesis was about punishment, guilt, and addiction. Was yeah, the I'll um, tell you,
2: yeah really what it is? Is that and this is what was fascinating to me in reading in reading these other papers that I came across after I found my own paper from 22 years ago was that. One of the things that, that has struck me with the couples that I work with and the men that I work with is that after a discovery and then hopefully a disclosure and then that whole process, I see that the men go into a place of subjugation and uh, on some level, some, uh, a level of being almost submissive in many ways. And that, and mm-hmm. then I, you know, and that's always struck me. And I've always tried to figure out how to work with that because part of the reason why so many men will turn to sexual acting out is because they have resentment, and they have, um, they feel entitled, and they, they, and they don't have the emotional vocabulary to deal with what they're feeling, and so they instead will self-medicate, and they'll, they'll engage in these destructive behaviors. When I read this article that, that was about the whole idea of, of the unconscious need for punishment, I thought, well, oh, this is fascinating. What this guy is saying is that it actually the, – the being in a place of being punished and then subjugating yourself and, and, and being submissive is actually not the, 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 the answer and surely not the long-term solution, and – that it's a way to defend against feeling guilt and feeling regret. And so rather, so it's actually a way, by engaging in this kind of almost sadomasochistic dynamic, they, they are not letting themselves feel that they actually hurt their partner. And so, so to get them out of that, that subjugating place and instead get them into an emotionally literate place, is where we want to get these clients. It's where we want to move them. It's 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 how you want to move them along. Like I had one guy that 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 was just always with his tail between his legs and and not not expressing his needs, not communicating what what he's feeling, and so on. And I realized he has chosen this type of this punishment. This idea of of getting punished, getting punished, getting punished. Rather than acknowledging that he hurts someone, and that that's actually harder for them to do, they'd rather be. I'll just be punished for the for the remainder of my you know my my marriage. It's the it's the it's the uh, it's the price I have to pay for my criminal behavior. But it's actually not the long term answer. The long term answer oh, is that moment, that moment when you see. That one that your patient has actually recognized they've done damage, and that that is when they actually begin to break through some of that narcissistic haze and actually understand the subjectivity of their partners and others, and others they become they become much more um, relational. And that's what I found so fascinating about the article was like I have been on to this, but I've never really had a way to articulate it until I read the article. And then I went back and read my my paper from 1998 again, and I said, "Oh, that's what I was trying to get at." I just didn't have the exact language yet because I was relatively new in the career. And um, but that's exactly I: And time, that I have myself. seen that. What's that?
0: You were ahead of your time and you didn't even know
2: it. <laughs> I know. But I you know. know. <laughs> it was kind of kind of gratifying.
0: Well, absolutely. And then the other thing I thought was really interesting as I read through this, um, what we know about partners who have been traumatized, and it's a trauma response, is that they have a which, of course, is mm-hmm. that inability to put words, to, to use words, to have a voice, to be able to think yep. through language. And you you mentioned, hey, this happens to all trauma victims. It happens to a lot of the men I work with.
2: Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I think, I, and I think I put this in my paper, is that um, Levant, who wrote a lot about this, actually uh, labeled it normative male alexithymia. How interesting is that? And he was saying that what we have is we have, because of the way socialization works and the way that, um, uh, the, the, uh, the repercussions of emotional neglect is that we have this type of male alexithymia, which is exactly what I think is what needs to be treated with the men that do this behavior. Like one of the things that, that I, um, that I've been aware of is like the writings of the psychoanalyst Masud Khan, who was kind of out of control himself actually. Um, in a number of ways, although he was brilliant. One of the things that Masud Khan said is that when people engage in these out-of-control sexual behaviors, it's almost like they're – I'm going to explain this as clear as I can because it's a little psychoanalytic, but I think it's really interesting. He said they were looking for transitional space, and basically what that means is that they were wishing for a connection with someone, but they didn't know it. Because they, you know, you know how uh, how they talk about transitional objects, like a teddy bear or an article of clothing of one of your parents, and that that becomes a transitional oh, yeah. object that when we have connection to that, we feel comforted. These guys didn't have that, and what became the transitional object slash space was sexual acting out. That's why Patrick Carnes talked about when these guys just start to even fantasize about engaging in, in whatever their sexual behavior is, they go into a trance. And so then all of a sudden they are in this space. And that Masu Khan was saying this 20 years before uh, Patrick, actually 30 years before Patrick Karnes. And he was saying that these people are using these activities as a way of trying to have a, a form of object constancy, a connection, except it's, it's, it doesn't work. It's what people were doing with alcohol and drugs and other things. It doesn't. It, it works for a short period of time, but in the long run, it backfires. And that 100%. to me is really interesting. But like one of the things. One of the things that I think you'll find interesting is that. And I said this to a, a patient the other day. He said that he was he was he was traveling, and this is a guy that's not completely. Um, sober yet or in recovery yet I'm working towards getting him there right and he said to me that he was traveling and that um, he's in, and he's engaged and he was going to he's traveling and and he said that he immediately started to look up things that he could do away or when he's away um, sexually and I, I I said you know what let's take that away for a second let's take that off the table and let me ask you something how do you feel about the idea of you getting onto a plane, traveling somewhere, and, and leaving your fiance and your, um, your stepson uh, and stepdaughter behind? I said, how do you feel about that? And, and he stopped, and he reflected, and he said, lonely. And I said, and you know what you do? I said, what you do is you turn loneliness opportunity. And you know why you do that? Is because you don't want to feel the loneliness. So you immediately think, oh, I'm going to London. That's a great place to sexually act out. I said, but that's not, what you're, that's not really what you're doing. You're warding off loneliness. You don't want to feel that. I said, so you turn, you turn sadness, loneliness, aloneness into some sort of sexual triumph. So that's, what, well, that's what's up here. So one of the things I've had people do when they travel, I said, you pack framed pictures of your spouse, your family, and so on, and you put them out on the nightstand. You start to develop that object constancy. I don't call it that when I'm t- explaining it to them, but, but you, you, you create that sense of, Oh, I'm not alone. Cause these guys, when they're set, they're out of sight, out of mind guys. They, they the minute they are away from their, their partners, they all of a sudden are atomized but it's really about the loneliness and the sadness and the what the separation anxieties that we all have but they're, I said you, I said to the guy I said you realize that's why people drink more when they're in airports right and right. he's like what do you mean i said everyone acts out in an airport not everyone but most people do i said they eat more they drink more and even been known that people anxiety. had sex in an airport. Yeah, Exactly, exactly. Hey, Michael. Exactly. I can't
0: tell you how informative this has been. The bad news is I've got 30 more seconds, so I have to say goodbye. You have got to keep us posted on your papers that you're writing because you're a genius, and we want to talk to you further. <laughs> you promise?
2: Thanks, Carol. I promise. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate your support. Like, I love the fact that you contacted me and, and asked me to come on again. I loved it the first time. This was great, too. And let's stay in touch.
0: Well, absolutely. And you know what? I'm probably going to get people that want a copy of the paper. So um, I'll, be,
2: I'll be keeping in contact with
0: you. <laughs>
2: that sounds good. All right, I'm, you happy, take to, care, I'm happy to offer that. Okay, thanks again, Carol. I know you, you're happy to oblige. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. All right. You have a good night. You too. And
0: as I say, the end of every show. So only to one of you at all times, so fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. And we will see you next week.